BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hit the subscribe button so you don't miss the updates on the great writers we have coming up over the next few weeks. And if you want to see photos of the studio and the cocktails getting made, check out my Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And please leave a comment. I want to hear about the writers you want to hear on this show. I've been getting a lot of great booking ideas from you guys. Welcome to Dedicated with Doug Brunt. You have just gained access to an exclusive insider's look at the lives and works of some of your favorite authors and hear conversations with the world's greatest writers as they discuss their writing lifestyle, creative process, latest work, and behind-the-scenes revelations. Welcome to Dedicated. I'm your host, Doug Brunt. Today, we're talking with Elliot Ackerman. I knew of Elliot, but had never taken a closer look at his achievements, which I discovered read like a fictional superhero. Elliot is a former Marine Corps Special Operations team leader with a total of five deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan. He's been awarded the Bronze Star for Valor, the Silver Star for Heroics in Battle, and a Purple Heart. He's also the author of nine books, both fiction and nonfiction and has won or been nominated for just about every literary prize there is, including the National Book Award, the Andrew Carnegie Medal, and the Dayton Literary Prize. His latest is the novel Halcyon, and I'm thrilled to have him with us today. Elliot, welcome. Thanks for having me, Doug. So in keeping with two of the main characters of your latest book here, who have interesting conversations over martinis, we're going to be drinking a traditional gin martini with four olives. So awesome. I've got it all uh, rigged up oh, here with some ice. I've been wondering how you were gonna how we were gonna do this. This is great. <laughs> <laughs> and I've got some Bar Hill gin here, which is yeah, very nice. Distilled somewhat locally in Vermont it was a grif- uh, gift of our our pal Chris Bojalian. Awesome. I'll put a little more in there. So I understand you have a tennis game later. So we'll see. Yeah. Oh. Uh, don't 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 let that hold you back. <laughs> <laughs> this is definitely gonna be an advantage for your opponent. I hope there's no like money riding on this. Do you uh, uh, do you have it dirty or not dirty? Uh, I do. I do not dirty. But go ahead if you want okay. a little dirty. Well, all right, it we'll can go a, either way. Put a tiny bit in yeah, there, there just you. a bit. And I, but I think the key is, is the four olives. The four olives, exactly. So I've got these little plastic swords. Beautiful. I actually went shopping for the olives last night, and the store had Tipsy, which is a pretty good olive brand, but they only had the pimento ones, which. I can't do yeah, that. There you go. You, you, could, do, you could do two. You could do two on there and play. Yeah, plunk one more. Just plunk one in. That's yeah, a good idea. Plunk it in. As as the thing I like four. about the four olive martini ride right, is kind of like you get your like your appetizer and your drink at the same time. <laughs> like you don't have to go to the nut jar. You got your olives in your glass. It's nice. It's something to look forward to at the at the end of it. Yeah. And it, you know, and it makes sure you're getting like a little caloric intake as you're downing your martinis. Yeah, it can't just be straight. You do. You know, you do it with a twist. It gets a little dangerous. Yeah. I agree, and the uh, you know a little salt content never never hurts. hurts. I mean, maybe it hurts, but it's good. It's good. All right, stirred, shaken. Uh, I do. I you stir it. Stir it's good. Okay. I go either way. The uh, I was doing a different cocktail, and I was asking the bartender once why he would never shake this drink, and he said, "Well, it bruises the gin." I like the idea that you could bruise gin. I had not heard of that. Yeah, but, which I think means just basically like you get if you get little bits of ice like banged off, like sharded into it. That's like the equivalent of bruising. Okay, that gin. that makes sense to me. I, so bruising, I hadn't really thought of. But when you do shake it, it does break up the ice, which leads to sort of more water Watery, content. Yeah, yeah, it's less. Kind of defeats the purpose of an up drink. This is beautiful. All, All right. right. Yeah, it's just a couple guys having martinis on a summer day <laughs> in, in the New middle York of the day. in the middle of summer. Yeah. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. Hmm. Oh, yeah. Kind of crush my tennis game. <laughs> <laughs> so, as I mentioned, I was really amazed by your 
personal achievements. And then I found something equally amazing because when I finished kind of getting through your bio, your bio as my preparation for the show, I was thinking, well, your family must be so proud, you know, your military service and your incredible writing success. And then I read a bit about some of your family members. And it's like, you're like an average Ackerman. What's what's going on in the gene pool over there? Uh I don't know my um my you know my, my I don't know if you're referring to my brother but you know like my, my brother and I are very very close we're very different uh, mm-hmm. in many ways but my brother is a um uh a mathematician like a very gifted like you know when I was like four years he's two years older than me so when I was like mm-hmm. four in the back like the family Volvo with like my finger up my nose banging my GI Joes <laughs> together breathing out of my mouth um my brother was you know saying things like you know dad if if x is three and y is unknown like and he was doing like basic algebra at six years old so he's one of these people mm-hmm. like you know who just was touched and he yeah. has the math thing yeah um but then the other side of his personality was he's, he was a wrestler so yeah. he started wrestling like in middle school wrestled all through high school and then wrestled into college um and so it was often said of my brother that um he was the biggest nerd to ever walk into the wrestling room, but he was the coolest guy to ever walk into the math department. <laughs> it is, it's an incredible combination. So he's an, a PhD, MIT mathematician. Yes. And an Olympic level wrestler. Yes, an Olympic wrestler. Amazing. And then your dad is one of the most successful businessmen of his generation, and your mom is a journalist and novelist. Yes, yeah. So it's sort of our... Uh, High-performing our household. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's so. amazing. Must have been... Uh, uh, an incredible household. You know, I, I do believe in that saying, if you see it, you can be it. Uh, and so you were seeing some cool stuff. And of course, to get to your level, there has to be some real real natural gifts there as well. But uh, Yeah, but I will tell you, like, I, I was... I was growing up like the kid who... I was a huge skater rat growing up. Mm-hmm. Like, I had this mane of long, curly hair. I wore, like, the saggy pants. I, like, hung out at the skate spot. I was, you know bringing home like a B minus average. I mean, this was like well into my teen years. Mm-hmm. And I was sort of a little bit like the the plane, like descending into the mountain. And at the last moment, at least sort of, you know, academically kind of pulled up and got my act together as I was kind of, you know, going off to school and leaving home. Okay. And then sort of at, at age 17, I sort of had this like, you know, uh, Paul on his way to Tarsus moment. I'm like, I'm going to join the Marine Corps. This is what I'm going to do. You know, I just like, this was, I just, it was a very intense 180 for me. Um, so, um you know, so I, I think everyone kind of, you know, we all take our journeys and finding ourselves in our life. But yeah. I, 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 I by no means was like always knocking it out of the park. And I know from uh, from my folks, as I'm a father now, you know, there are many dark nights of the soul where they're like, Jesus, is Elliot ever going to get, get it right, together? Is he going to get it together? Is he going to make it? <laughs> yes, but my wife is the same way. She was a, a late bloomer academically and just sort of in terms of buckling down in, in any way. But I, I read that you were in London from age nine to 15. So mm-hmm. pretty good chunk of the formative years there. Did you know at that time you wanted to be a writer? Or that, that all came later, 17 and beyond? If you'd met me, so I was I moved there when I was nine and then when I was 11, I got, uh, I got very into skateboarding. Like this was like my whole life was skateboarding. Yeah. There was like this big skate spot in London. So there's called the South Bank. Uh, mm-hmm. It was famous in London. I spent like my formative years you know i go to school but i immediately go down to south bank and all my friends were like the guys who hung out at south bank mm-hmm. so if you'd asked me like 11 on like what did i want to do my dream was actually i was going to but anyway we were going to move to san francisco and we were going to rent an ice cream truck and be skaters um <laughs> which like horrified my parents um and to their credit like there was a, a good chunk kind of in my growing up where my brother who was always very accomplished and he was you know this, brilliant mathematician at school he was the captain of the wrestling team mm-hmm. and uh and i remember he went off you know he he skipped a grade um and so he landed at harvard at 17 and we were checking him in and you know dropping him off that summer yeah. and i remember having this long conversation with my mom but, you know i'm not going to college i'm going to san francisco to skateboard and um and you know and she was uh, to her credit, so like, well, you know, you'll, that's fine. That's what you want to do. And I think that's what you're doing. She didn't argue with me about it. I thought it was some very astute parenting. Right. And then I she had. goes back, and your, your parents are like, don't say no. That'll just make it worse. It'll just make it worse, right? I mean, I think I think all you know, and I'm a parent now. I think there's a lot of sort of jujitsu involved in parenting. You got to know where to, when to push and like when not to push because they'll only dig in. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Uh, so. Were you even like a reader back then? Because your writing is so terrific and uh, your pr- just stylistically, your prose is so good. I feel like 
he must have at least been an avid reader in those years, or even that came later. No, I was, I mean, I've always been, no. So what I want to be a writer, I wouldn't have said I wanted to be a writer. I didn't really know what I wanted to be, but I always was a reader. And mm-hmm. I was always very interested in, in stories. Um, and growing up in Los Angeles, and, you know, like people who know me to this day will tell you, like, I, for whatever reason, like, I, I'm constantly, I'm one of those guys who was always quoting movies. Yeah. I don't know why, it's just sort of like the way my mind works. So I think, you know, I think a lot of writing, right, is sort of like, it's like it's narrative. It's like how we take the very complex world around us and order it and then kind of synthesize it into a uh, into a story. Yeah. So I think my mind's always maybe worked that way a little bit. I That's true. I, I do that a little bit too. Like when you can work a, a classic movie line into conversation in a way that, you know, sort of grabs the room yeah. in a funny way. Um, so what about, you mentioned you did decide around 17. I, you joined the, the Marines in 2003 at the age 23 right. or so. Um, but you knew before then you were probably going to get on the military track? Yep. So I was, you know, I was going to go to college. Um, so, you know, you do as you do, you apply to all the schools. And I, at that point, was like, I want to go into the Marine Corps. So there's different ways to do that. And I was, you know, going to try to become an officer. Uh, so you could, I applied to the service academies and applied to the ROTC programs through you know, college. So ROTC is basically a program where you're like in the reserves mm-hmm. all through your college years and you take extra classes and you do training in the summer. And then when you get your degree, they make you an officer. Mm-hmm. So those are sort of like the two paths um, that I could potentially travel. Mm-hmm. And I sort of actually, when I was 18, um, had the options in front of me were to either go to the Naval Academy or to go to Tufts uh, and do ROTC at Tufts. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, at this point, my mother in particular actually was very, you know, so I've sort of within a year made this huge transformation. I don't have a huge military history in my family. I'm mean, a little on the margins like most, but, you know, we're not a military family. And she was, you know, like probably most mothers was sort of very anxious about this and terrified that I was going to elect to go to the Naval Academy, which seemed very, very foreign to her. Mm-hmm. So was, I remember, so it was the night that I had to make my decision. I like got in my, you know, beat up car that I was driving at age 18, like, you know, drove around the block a few times, you know, my, you know, Naval Academy Tufts and uh, decided, well, I'm not very good at engineering and that's what they teach you at the Naval Academy and no one could guarantee me that I would go into the Marines at the Naval Academy, but they could guarantee mm-hmm. me that and the ROTC program, I wound up going to Tufts. But this was in 1998 and so I committed to the program then and then while I was in, co- you know, while I'm, while I'm in college, 9-11, 9/11 happens happens, and, you know, yeah. and suddenly, yeah. you know, you're, you're, you're graduating into a very, very different world. Yeah. And so your first deployment was 03 or... So my so I started training in 2003, and then my first deployment overseas was we left in June of 2004 to Iraq. Okay. Right. We had Jack Carr on the show, who you may know. He, he mm-hmm. writes yep. uh, some great thrillers, and he's a former Navy SEAL. And he was saying when he was on these deployments, he was always reading DeMille or Lee Child or Brad Thor. When you were out there, were you reading these kinds of things at all or reading, reading or even keeping a war journal of any kind? I, I was always reading. Um uh, and have always been a bit of a reader. And I, cause when I sort of look back, I now recognize what I was doing, even though I couldn't put words to it. Like, I was actually sort of obnoxiously the guy who would write opinion pieces for the Marine Corps Gazette, which is like the internal publication of the Marine Corps. So, like, you know, I would like, I mean, I had one opinion piece that was like arguing why we should take all maximum scores out of our physical fitness test just so people can really do their very, very best. You know, that makes sense. So like a perfect score shouldn't be 18 minutes on a three mile run. There should just be no perfect score. It should be you can just get as many points as you want. Like mm-hmm. I was always sort of, you know, trying to engage through words in like a broader conversation. So that was the type of writing I was doing. I was never keeping a journal, mm-hmm. although people encouraged me to. I would do like a family and f- I would like write a letter home maybe every like six weeks or something like an email just yeah. to like a broader network of folks who are like, you know, how's Elliot doing? But um, I was never writing with any intentionality. Mm-hmm. Um, although there was always sort of this part of me um, that suspected I might write at some point. And there was also this part of me that knew, uh, particularly as a Marine, that there were these, you know, these books that were like very seminal books that probably maybe outside Marine circles people know, but aren't quite as famous. But like, like it, what? Well, I, I very famously um, or infamously, when I showed up at my first Marine unit, I made my entire platoon read uh, the Robert Heinlein book, Starship Troopers. I don't know if you're familiar with this book. I, I know, I know the, the author's name and, and the name of the book, but I've never read that okay, one. Okay, so it was made into like a very camp movie. With and, Tim Allen? Not, not that one. No, but, no. That's like that. something else. Uh, I'm trying to remember the actors, but it was, it's, it's actually, it's a movie that's great because it's so camp, but the, mm. the science fiction novel is like this very interesting meditation on like 
the role of the citizen and the military and you know you have this group called like the mobile infantry and they're you know fighting the bugger wars and mm-hmm. anyways um so I tell the whole platoon, hey guys, like we're going to read this book. It's going to be like, you know, I mean, I wasn't that, even that aggressive with it. I was like, you know, a chapter every two weeks. And there was like a minor revolt in the platoon. <laughs> like, you know, hey, sir, like, you know, if I wanted to read books, uh, I wouldn't have joined the infantry. I'd be like sitting at college somewhere. Like, this is BS. And like, I mean, and to this day, guy, I mean, I'm still in touch with a lot of guys in that platoon. And they'll still be like, remember when you made us read Starship Troopers? Man, we were, we did, were going to Did they you. actually do it? Well, what was interesting was the young guys who just got out of recruit training, like, kind of did it, and they were into it. And we would do, like, you know, almost like a book group. We'd be like, hey, let's yeah. all come on. Like, we're all going to talk about chapter two and, you know, what this means. And the older, like, the non-coms, um, like the corporals and sergeants, yeah. um, who, had ju- who were, like, had just come back from the Iraq invasion. So I'm, like, the new guy. I haven't been to war yet. Yeah. You know, they've been back from, from you know, from one, which is the invasion. They're like, this is such a waste of time. Like, we're going to, you know, LT's <laughs> an idiot. Um, LT. Yeah, so... Um, Play books like that, books like uh, Gates of Fire, um, why Stephen Pressfield was all about the Battle of Thermopylae. I have to make a list. I don't oh, these are great either. books. Um, but then there were books like um, Jim Webb, who was a very iconic Marine in Vietnam, Navy Cross recipient. He was a Secretary of the Navy under Reagan, was a senator from uh, Virginia, but was you mm-hmm. know also a accomplished author. He wrote a book in the seventies called Fields of Fire. Is this uh, nonfiction or no? This is a novel. It's a novel. Uh, it's a novel all about his experience in the Marine Corps. It's about you know a rifle platoon commander in the Marine Corps, mm-hmm. uh, Lieutenant uh, Hodge. Robert E. Lee Hodges and his platoon in Vietnam and the yeah. Arizona Valley or in the Asha Valley. Um, so it's but it can one, take you there, right? It's totally. Like, and it's and it's like, um, you know, I, I, I think there are probably very few Marine officers who haven't read this book and and many, many other Marines do because it's sort of this meditation on like small unit leadership. In can the you, can you say the name one more time for listeners? I, sure. It's called Fields of Fire. Fields of Fire. Um so, you know, so I, as I got on, you know, I always sort of had, you know, when I suspected like, oh, I might write about this experience very quickly, I was like, you know, I'm not going to write, I don't have no ambition to write like one of these, you know, uh, no shit there I was books. Cause like, I don't think anyone wants to hear that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I like, you know, it is, you know, would it be possible to write one of these books, like a book that Jim Webb wrote? Mm-hmm. And I only say that because I, cause, cause I knew how much that book meant to me yeah. and meant to so many people who like when I was going into this, when I'm like, you know, meeting my platoon and being like, I think it's a good idea. We should read Starship Troopers. And they're like, hey, screw you, LT. And I'm trying to figure that all out. Yeah. I could go back to a book like Fields of Fire, which I knew was Webb's experience kind of distilled into fiction. Um, and, you know, and, and there were real truths there. So I think that I, uh, at least as it relates to my time in the military, kind of as I was experiencing some things, felt like, okay, you know, I and folks like me are kind of the, you know, you become sort of the custodians of these memories. Yeah. Like, and Is Jim Webb still alive? Yeah, he's still alive. Have you met him? So we met, we never met met. He came in 2003 to Quantico, which is mm-hmm. where they you know, train Marine lieutenants. And um, I'm sorry, it was probably very early 2004. And he talked to my class at the infantry officer course when we were mm-hmm. about a month out from graduating. He, we were all gathered around and he talked to us. And he said many things. And one of the things he said, he said, you know, you guys are actually the first group of lieutenants since Vietnam to graduate Quantico knowing that you're going to war. Yeah. Because there have been guys from the, inv- you know, like mm-hmm. they were in the invasion, like, you know, they didn't know as they were going through training that that was what was going to happen. But we were actually kind of the first group that really knew. And like, I remember we had guys in the class that had graduated just before mine who'd been killed. Uh, a couple of friends of mine had to graduate early to become combat replacement. So there was just sort of the sense of immediacy. And I'll never forget, you know, Jim Webb showing up and kind of talking, you know, because he's an icon in, in that little culture. Yeah. And it's a powerful to talk thing to, to hear, too. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. So, um, so was I reading? I was always reading. And I was reading to, you know, to understand or to try to understand some of the experiences that I would have. And then after I had those experiences, um, you know, I certainly felt like I wanted to try to you know, be a good custodian because Mm -hmm. God knows someday there's going to be some, you know, 17 year old kid out there who's thinking that he or she might want to like go into the Marine Corps or whatever, you know, and they're going to be like, well, what is this experience? And they're going to kind of look out there, you know, look around for what's out there. And um, I think those of us who have gone through it, you know, you become the custodians of that memory and you can carry it forward. It's like the uh, the Scott Turow 1L thing who writes the experience of like, this is what a first year law student gets. Like right. that's the definitive book about law school and every law student gets it. Absolutely. You know, if, yeah, you, absolutely. if you do that for the military. Mm-hmm. It's also, that's interesting that um, you had that 
I, I think it's a common feeling for a lot of writers to be able to tie back, not always to one book, but I do think a lot of writers feel like I want to make people feel the way this book made me feel mm-hmm. and, you know, sort of deliver that gift this book gave me. And, and for you, uh, it's, it's, uh, this, this book feels a fire, I guess, in, yeah. in some ways. Well, but I'll, I mean, I mean, if I can add though, cause I mean, I know, you know, we're talking about creativity and writing, um, so I sort of made this decision at one point. I said, I want to try to write this book. I want to kind of try to write this like very close to the bone. Is this what, what uh, became Green on Blue? No. So I'm going to write this kind of close to the bone, sort of autobiographical war novel. So I sort of thought I might do it someday. And then I made the decision like, okay, this is my last deployment. And that was actually the first moment I felt like there was like a psychic disconnect. I'm like, I can actually now do this because I'm no longer, you know, I, was, I mean, it was almost like the net, it was literally like two days after I dropped in my, dropped my papers that I was, I, I now look back and say, these are my first real attempts at like seriously writing. Mm-hmm. And so I sat there and like quietly didn't tell anyone I was doing this, like tried to start crafting this novel and for many years. And I didn't, I didn't, and I wanted to tell anyone I was doing it because frankly, like, you know, saying that you want to write when you have nothing to show for it felt kind of silly. It felt like being like, you know, I want to dance. Like, you know, like <laughs> I don't have anything to show for this. Like, I'm like, I'm just going to do it, you know, chip right. away, chip away for years. I'm like quietly writing this That's book. Funny. Um, and then I finished it and I handed it to a, um, a friend who had worked in publishing, who's retired. He then handed it to an editor he used to work with who liked it, who handed it to an agent who liked it. And like, this was, I was like, wow, everyone said this is gonna be so hard. This is going great. That agent who, who's still my agent today, who I, who I love and is awesome, sent it out to like 26 publishers, all the ones you would want it to go to. And at the time, I didn't know anything. I'm just like, oh, this is, sure, sounds good. Mm-hmm. Um, 26 rejections. Oh. And so, like, you know, the first yeah. book doesn't sell. And that was that kind of that book. But I had started my second book. And um, someone along the way had given me advice, when you finish one, make sure you, you know, if you've got an idea, start the next. And so I had started the next. And I was about a two-thirds of the way advice. through it. That, that came from a writer, I assume. Yeah, a writer. And it's yeah. great advice. And that second book is Green on Blue. Okay. And then, so I have... Is the uh, first one still bottom drawer? It's still, yeah, it's in a drawer. Okay. Never, and I, never know, maybe, res- resurrected. Yeah, uh, maybe someday. Yeah. And I have this idea, maybe like, uh, you know, if I'm fortunate enough to still be writing when I'm like a very old gray man, like I'll <laughs> pull it out and be like, this is the la- the first one will become the last one. Um, but I bring it up because I think there's a certain moment for every writer where you just have to like, you know, realize you're going to write, you know, you're going to write lots of things. There's such an emphasis oftentimes on a first book yeah. that that can come to, I think, people's like creative detriment. Um, because if you are going to be a writer, you're like, you're not just going to write one book. You will write many books and you will learn how to write many books. So um, anyways, I like to tell that story. I think I think it's good. I wish more writers would, you know, tell their stories of, yeah. you know, when they get knocked around because everybody gets knocked around. Everyone gets knocked around for yeah. sure. And, it, you know, one of, the, one of the things a few folks have mentioned to me that a few people have gotten this advice and then and and sort of paid it forward, which is it's okay to write a bad sentence, a bad paragraph, a bad totally. book. You know, you can scrap it and move on. But if you're a writer, you know, you'll you'll bounce back. And you have to. Like I have, um, I have you know my laptop over. Like I have a whole graveyard in my laptop, of like ninety <laughs> pages. Then I'm like, this, this right. is lame. This sucks. Like, uh, but you have to write all that stuff, you know, to get to the get to the thing that works. So your debut was Green on Blue, which was fiction. You've written right. both, but um, your your first book was 20, 2015, Green on Blue, which was an instant critical success. And from there, you've really gotten into a very productive groove. I mean, you, you've been prolific over the, that, you know, eight-year, nine-year period. Um, and you're... So I, I want to do a little bit on your process because your prose has been described as... Let me say, I've written some things down here. Direct, unadorned, and draws frequent comparisons to Hemingway. So... <laughs> Wanted to ask you a little bit about your your process. And by the way, uh, Halcyon was terrific. I Thank you. Read that in one si- well one and a half sittings. Thank you. Um, so a couple of, like sort of quick process questions for you. And again, you, you write novels. You've written nonfiction memoirs. You've also written some shorter form pieces for Esquire and The right. Atlantic and and things like that. So maybe maybe starting there on on these three different types of writing you do. How do you decide which lane you're going to jump into next? So I um. I consider myself like a novelist. Like that's sort of my energy and my focus is like writing these novels. Mm-hmm. And um, but then I think oftentimes you sort of get you know you'll get pulled in other directions. So um, I uh, so the I like to kind of be out in the world. You know I think it's good. Like I don't. I'm not. You know, many writers 
work this way. I don't, you know, they sort of just kind of go up and two, you know, they're in the attic for two years and they come back down with a masterpiece. Like yeah. I sort of, the journalism I do, like it keeps me out in the world, keeps me engaged with events. Um, you know, like there's a novel I wrote called Dark of the Crossing, which is all about the Syrian civil war. And, you know, I was in Southern Turkey and in Syria, you know, like kind of, so I was researching the book, but I was like, I'm just going to show up. And I had an, the ability to show up and then things started happening. And so, you know, you'd never really have an experience like, well, I should write about this. Or there'd be like a, other taste where they'd be like, you know, a battle or something. And I would be proximate to it. It's like, well, you know, I can easily write a little like dispatch for, you know, one of the handful of editors that I'm working with. And that's yeah. to me, Austin kind of becomes like a, a first draft of uh, a novel. And if you were to take like uh, a book like Dark at the Crossing, which is the one set in Syria and take, for instance, like I wrote a memoir called Places and Names, which is about uh, Iraq and uh, and also then sort of Syria and the interrelation of those two wars like mm. you could see or you can see like a roadmap of the novel in the nonfiction book mm. like almost as scenes like I could even show you like little bits of dialogue that are sort of where one consumes the other so I feel like you know the the nonfiction has always uh, fed the fiction kind of for supported me or, yeah, fed yeah. and then when the nonfiction winds up in a book it's more because it gets to a point where like that nonfiction like has taken on a shape if that makes sense like the the first places and names, which is the memoir I wrote, um, I didn't know I was writing a memoir as I was writing it. My wife, uh, who is uh, also a novelist, but has also had a pretty broad career as an editor, at a certain mm -hmm. point, as I was like writing these dispatches, and I often like give them to her, like, "Hey, read this and tell me if you think it's garbage." And um, <laughs> and at a certain point, she's like, "You know, you're like you're writing a book here." And yeah. I hadn't like seen. She saw the shape of it before I did. I was like, oh, "How God, great to have an in-house editor!" It's fantastic. Can, I recommend phenomenal. it. Yeah. <laughs> I recommend it. <laughs> so when you have these sparks, maybe that come from the nonfiction, you think, "Oh, maybe there's a book here." Do you then sit down and try to step back and outline it, or do you, do you work from an outline, or you just go? No. Well, you say sparks. Like that's actually how. So sort of here's how I actually think about it with a novel is, um, like maybe I'll have an idea of something like the theme an opening scene and so the, the analogy i've always used is like it's like i'm standing in a field of like knee-high grass right and it's very dry grass and i'm sitting there and i've got like these two flints in my hand as i'm trying to like get a novel going right and i'm like banging these flints together <laughs> to make sparks like like a crazy man mm -hmm. because my job is to like light this whole field on fire, right? I gotta light the field on fire. That's like the novel, it's like, you know, like the imagination that's like, you know, getting the whole story going. Like when the field's like on fire, that's like when I'm cooking and yeah. I like, I know what's happening and everything's feeling really very real. So those flints that are in my hand are inevitably like something that has happened to me in real life, like a true experience that happened to me. But then like the sparks, I mean, that's all like imagination. So like my process is often, I'm, I'm starting with like these two little flints, like, not to just focus on like dark at the crossing that book but like i came back from an early trip reporting you know in syria and i was right on the border one day and there was this sort of scene playing out on the border with this like really grievously wounded syrian man who'd been brought across and a number of doctors some who were russians and then i was there as an american it was just sort of this very interesting interplay and it was pretty you know somewhat early in the civil war uh, and i had come home and i was describing it to a friend of mine who was also a novelist and I was like, yeah, and I told him the whole sort of story. And he was like, um, I was like, but I ended, I was like, you know, but I don't really know. I don't really, you know, it's not like really much of a piece of journalism. Like there's no thesis, there's no newsy angle to it. He's like, he's like, just write it, man, you just write it. Mm -hmm. And so I just sort of wrote that scene. And then I started imagining, like, you know, like what could I, like what could have happened here? You know, like what, sh what should have happened here? Then, you know, then you start kind of going in those, you mm -hmm. know, different directions. And then, so that's sort of my process will be, I kind of just, start exploring all of those questions that I have in the narrative. Yeah. Um, and sometimes it goes well, and sometimes it's like, you know, I, it's like running into a brick wall and it goes yeah. nowhere, and then it doesn't work, and you, you gotta start again. Yeah. yeah. A couple quick, like, just weird technical ones, but do you write by hand or keyboard? So when I am starting something like very, very in the, in, like it's in incipient phases, I will like maybe write out the, I will write outlines, like ideas in hand. Mm -hmm. This is all, I'm talking like maybe for a week or two like mm -hmm. in hand I'll maybe try to write out like the opening two paragraphs in hand mm -hmm. and then I start once I yeah. feel like we can draw decent. arrows around and scratch yeah or whatever just like ideas yeah. and blah blah this and then like you know if I'm just like working on the side but then once you know once I sit down I'm like alright let me really try this then I'm on the keyboard and I'll write you know I'll wake up in the morning on a good day if I don't have any you know major competing factors in the day like martinis at noon martinis kind of at thing. noon yeah type of thing i will like you know i wake up in the i'll wake up in the morning i can you know get to my desk and uh you know i try to do a thousand words whether they're good or bad yeah. each day 
And uh, we try to power that out. Like if it's not coming, you'll still try to get a thousand. Yeah. Or would you ever just say, you know what, today's not the day? No, I'll just write garbage thousand words, you know, and then yeah. I'll go back and um, always write a thousand. Yeah. I will at the end of it give myself like twenty or thirty words for the next day. Yeah. Does that make sense? So like the next, I'll give myself these twenty or thirty words, and they don't count for that day. They count for the next day. Yeah. So that gets me yeah. started the next day, and then I will often try like at the end of the day, you know, and then I'll go do whatever I'm going to do, and then like you know five or six or whatever when I got them in, I'll just read over quickly what I did that morning, and then when I sit down at my desk the next morning, I begin by reading out the last day's work, and I start again. And usually that, you know, unless it's completely coming apart and not going well that will be enough to you know keep me going and then on the weekends usually i will go and like read back 50 pages read back 50 pages read back 50 pages and just kind of so you do sort of edit as you go yes i'm in editing i'm reading those 50 pages because i mean i don't know if you have the experience doug is like when you're building a book i almost feel it's like analogous to like i'm building a spaceship Right. And like there's all these nozzles and like, you know, little dials and things like that I have to know about. And I have to have this whole cockpit that I've assembled, like pretty well memorized Mm -hmm. um, or else I'm not going to be very uh, dexterous at like guiding my spaceship. Right. So I'm reading back 50 pages to like edit a little bit, but I really try not to get like mired down in that. But just so like it's always fresh in my mind, the story's fresh in my mind. I just find that helps me have those like little breakthroughs you need. Have the whole, yeah. Yeah, it's it's like it has to be in my mind. If I'm just like not, if I haven't memorized that cockpit, then you know, like, I don't know. It's probably not gonna go that well. I'm gonna like crash into the side of the mountain. Yeah. Um, One other, our coffee. Are you a big coffee drinker? Or would you ever, like, if you're writing in the evening, would you do it with a glass of wine or a um, cocktail? Love coffee. Yeah. No, I will usually, like, eat my breakfast, have my coffee, and write. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't smoke anymore, but I will be candid. I used to love, like, having a few cigarettes while I wrote, but I don't do it anymore. But I completely understand why that's, like, many writers have gone to, have gone down that path of being yeah. heavy smokers. It's like... Uh, it's like there are two there are two occupations that really lend themselves well to smoking, and I've done with them war. Everyone at war smokes. Right. <laughs> I don't know why it is, but everybody's smoking. Even like present day, that has yeah, not, oh, present day, yeah. like the fittest, toughest. You know, many of the fittest, toughest spec op guys I know, all you know, if they're overseas, are you know smoking. I want. Is that like does nicotine just relax you in a way that like yeah. you can't have a drink really? But nicotine. I don't know might why. Do it. It's just like in the car, and like yeah, I mean dip too. But like it's like yeah. a lot of tobacco use. I don't know why. It's just it is like and it's funny guys who would like you come home and they don't do it at all go mm-hmm. overseas you know everyone's got a pack of cigarettes um and writing for whatever reason so uh i do not anymore but uh you know being honest like that's what i used to love to do uh, when i was younger so for me it's yeah i'll have a cup of coffee and i'll just you know get after it one other question on process because i know you co-wrote a book mm-hmm. with admiral and i want to say the last name correctly here the, the novel is called 2034 mm-hmm. with admiral james Stavridis? Yes, Stavridis. 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 All right, that's close. And I'm wondering, how how do the mechanics of the co-writing work between... How how did you design the collaboration, the Admiral? Yeah, we're actually... we. um uh, that book is is a part of a series, so it's a trilogy. So the next in the trilogy, which is 2054, is coming out early next year in mm-hmm. uh, in March. Um, so we are still in the midst of our long collaboration. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the way that book came to be was uh, we had the we were friends before, and we both are uh, uh, alumni of Tufts, and sort of knew each other through those networks, and Mm -hmm. then um, uh, had the same editor at Penguin Press, who kind of was a matchmaker for us. Um, And then we sat down, and I was like, "Well, let's you know, I mean, just because we're friends doesn't mean we would be good at writing books together." And we said, "Let's you know, let's try to write a first chapter and see how that goes." And so, Mm -hmm. we would we sat down with that first chapter, and we sort of outlined, "All right, here's what's going to happen." And that you know, that book is basically about a war between China and the United States in the aforementioned year where like cyber plays a big role too. And so we sort of outlined like our opening incident at sea. Um, and then, you know, once we kind of got our outline in shape, um, you know, someone's always got to kind of take the first crack. So I typically take the first crack at it. I'm like, all right, I'll write the 40 pages and then I hand it to him and then he kind of does his crack at it and we kind of bat it between the two of us until we feel, mm-hmm. until then we felt like it was a good first chapter. And then we gave it to our editor, he liked it and we wound up writing the book. And we've done every book that way since where we basically sort of you know go chapter by chapter chapter back by and chapter forth. back and forth it's yeah. done next chapter back and forth it's done um and that's been great i mean he's a 
he is a fantastic guy. He was had a you know before he retired from the navy had a very very big job. He was the supreme allied commander, uh, Europe. Which I is love like, that title. It's almost it's almost so great. It's un-American. Like the supreme commander. It he, sounds a little like you know four hundred years ago. He's got a great sense of humor, <laughs> and he will sometimes. I've heard him say to many a times, you know, I was the supreme allied commander, but if you would like, you can also call me El Supremo. So. <laughs> That's great. I actually want like the for an ambassador you have to call them like your excellency. Uh, yeah. And I tried that on at home. I'm like, I, I would like you all here at home to refer to me as your excellency. How'd that go? It didn't yeah, yeah no, not it didn't, so much. didn't work. Yeah, I would but um but I will say this, like he the one thing I've I've you know, as our friendship and collaboration is deep and that's clear to me is like well you know, the reason he uh excelled so well is he's like he's very good at getting the best out of people. Like, yeah. you know, he's a He's a great collaborator. So, I mean, for for you both, you're obviously a natural leader. If you were able to get a bunch of hardened Iraqi veterans to start reading, <laughs> reading novels and having a book club, I didn't uh, get them to read the book. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, one of them, who I was very, you know, who I and mean, we went through a lot together, and um, and of, uh, you know, had formed a very nice post-war friendship. Sent me, I was probably only about nine months ago. Texted me a photo bat photo, and it was of a paperback of the book. And he's probably I mean, he's forty now. Yeah. And he had read it, and he just wrote, "Okay, not bad." Not bad. <laughs> it took took me twenty years it took to 20 do years it. Twenty years, and he did it. <laughs> That's funny. But yeah, that that so the group writing thing is it always fascinates me because I you know I'm up in my little room and yeah, um, but the back and forth, you know, he has he has such institutional naval knowledge that I'm oh, yeah. sure that kind of uh, input on certain things is really. Well, I'll sometimes, you know, I'll sometimes write things in a draft, like, you know, this is something like, blah, 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 like a gym, you know, awesome naval scene with great technical detail that Jim writes here. You know yeah. what I mean? Because he's, he does, yes. He I mean, just like placeholder. Gym placeholder, yeah. And he's put, yeah. A, you know, and he's spent an entire, you know, career, I mean, at, at sea. So he's got a, a real, yeah, reservoir to draw from. All right. Well, I'm, I'm glad there's, uh, there's two more coming in the series. Yeah, it's been fun. It's been a lot of fun to do. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a house. It's your home, the place that's filled with memories. The early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica, empathy is our best policy. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Let's turn to Halcyon because the novel is terrific. And this is not going to give away much to listeners it gives away nothing that would be problematic it's an alternate history with the inflection point being the 2000 presidential election bush v gore and in the novel you imagine that gore wins the election and then the novel picks up in the 2004 rematch between Mm -hmm. bush v gore and I love the alternate history stuff. I'm one classic example, which I'm sure listeners would know, would be The Man in the High Castle, the Philip yeah, Dick sure. novel where Nazis win the, win the Second World War. It's such a thought-provoking exercise to go through all the what-ifs. Um, and, you know, I'm fascinated with, I mean, 
you know, obviously fascinated with storytelling. I'm fascinated with history. And I think, you know, like we have lived through a a moment in the last two to three years, like, you know, significant societal upheaval in the United States. And what I try to do in Halcyon is take many of those questions, but then put them in sort of an alternate parallel America mm-hmm. in our recent past. And the reason I wanted to sort of set it in 2000, 2004 is I feel like that is that's about as far back as you can go today and say, well, that was actually history. Like mm-hmm. You start keep, keep getting like 2010, like it doesn't really feel like still history. Yeah, newspapers. It's still, yeah. yeah, it's still like newspapers. <laughs> like, oh, four, like, okay, like I'll say that's now, that's now history. So, um, but, um, you know, I'm interested and I'm very interested with these ideas of like how we, you know, how we judge people from the past, how a person living in one time can be, be considered a good man or a good woman. And how if we take that same person and plop them in our time, you know, they can be problematic and not a good mm-hmm. person and how you know, just how the, the times change and how when we reflect on it, it shifts and sort of the, actually the, the, so we were talking about process, sort of the book's inception for me was really, it was right before the pandemic. And I was um, in all places, uh, I was I was in Scotland, like way up in the north of Scotland. And a, a, a friend of my wife's and I was sort of, he, had, he was having some sort of, he had been having some health problems. And mm-hmm. someone suggested to him that he go do one of these like Wim Hof retreats. Are you familiar oh, with, with the this? freezing cold the freezing thing? freezing cold yeah. and like plunging in icy lakes. Yeah. And so I've tried, a, not that extreme, the Wim Hof thing is just crazy, but I, I have tried the cold plunge thing a little bit. Yeah. And so um, and so he and I were like friends. He was with my, we had really been my wife's friends. We'd always gotten along well. And he was going to do it with like his best friend in the world who at the last minute had to pull out. Mm-hmm. And so my wife says to me, she's like, you know, you know how Nick said he was going to go to this thing in school? I was like, yeah. He's like, you know, so-and-so pulled out. Like, would you ever think of doing it with him? And I was like, and I don't know. I try to, I've tried it in life, like be one of these guys who says yes. Right. So I like, I said yes. We went up there. We wind up like a week together. And he was laughing with me. He's like, you know, like, this is great. Like, uh, you're going to spend a week together in Scotland, like in New York City term. That's like, you know. A hundred dinners. It's like we're gonna know each other for thirty years at the end of this. So, um, but we go up and we. So we went up and we did it. And um, and I was sitting there one of the last nights, and I had this dream. So in the dream, um, so my wife's uh, mother and father had a very significant age difference. Um, and so my my wife's father was actually in the Second World War. He was in the OSS, and um, so they only had almost a thirty year age difference. And I never met him. He died in two thousand eight. But he is a person who, in their family, is just like beloved mm-hmm. so you know we're sitting here drinking martinis because you know that's what robert abelson the protagonist in the books drinks you know that was also what my father-in-law drank and um and all through in in her family um and you know and, and even all through the pandemic there's always been this refrain like you know what do you what do you think daddy would think of this what would he think of x mm-hmm. what do he think of y um and so i had this very intense dream um sitting there you know in this like little shack in scotland in the cold I, f- I felt like I was sitting down and having like a three-hour conversation with him. And I never met him, and I regret that I never met him. And um, I woke up from that dream, and I sort of, I don't know, I just had this desire to try to like capture the sense of that, the sense of sitting with someone who was beloved in their own time. But what would it be like for someone to then be out of time? Mm-hmm. And so kind of the, the framework of Abelson is this idea of taking someone out of time you know, and putting them into this time that is not their own. And so, you know, that's what kind of Halcyon is fundamentally about. So when you get into, yes, there's, you know, the gore stuff and the alternate history stuff, mm-hmm. but the that is becomes kind of a framework to see yeah. this man and how he tries to kind of walk through the a world that is no longer his own necessarily. Yeah, I mean, it, it is like a, uh, a medically advanced, you can't go home again in some ways. Right. Um, and it's interesting. I mean, my dad was born in the 20s. He, he'd be 97 yeah. this year. Wow. And... Um, it's interesting, you know, his, I don't know, I mean, you, you talk a bit about in the book, and again, this isn't giving away too much for readers, but, you know, Confederate monuments, should they be mm-hmm. torn down? Or is that history? And history is history and should be studied and yeah. not erased. Otherwise, we forget all about it. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, that the, the point of history is to be able to study it and learn from it. So a lot of these themes are, are uh, explored in the book. One of the other things that works so well in the book for me that just led to the enjoyment is the narrator is so likable. Smart, observant, and reminded me almost like a, like a Gatsby, Nick Carraway kind of narrator. That like I'm thrilled to spend 300 pages with this person. Thank you. Yeah. The um. Well, I thought it was um. You know, so the narrator is like Martin Newman, and he's sort of like I think he's a little bit like a he's sort of a down on his luck history professor. He's like trying to write his first book, and he's living in the guest house of this eminent 
uh, lawyer in Virginia. Um, and that guest house is on this estate called Halcyon, which is the title of the book. And um, in the evenings, uh, his landlord, you know, this lawyer comes by, Robert Abelson, and they have martinis and they just sort of talk and hang out. But then what Martin quickly learns is that um, Abelson is part of a kind of an experimental group of people who have been resuscitated from the dead. And so he is a man kind of living out of time and he, he is in a form of social quarantine mm-hmm. on his estate until the world knows that we've sort of had this breakthrough. Um, and so sort of Martin, who is of the time in which he's living and he is sort of hapless, is introduced with this, yeah, kind of Gatsby-esque figure. You know, he's mm-hmm. someone who he looks up to, but also there's a shroud of mystery around who Abelson really is. And kind of yeah. as the book rolls out, you sort of learn the truth about Abelson and how complex he is. Yeah. The other thing I wanted to ask you about with this, because you do talk about history and the our changing, you know, perception of history and how, how historical moments and figures should be treated. And uh, I wanted to get your thoughts on the, the great man theory of history, which is, you know, so, so I mean, history, listeners may already know all this, but there's this famous saying that history is really just a series of biographies of great men. But the alternate perspective is history from below. So it's not really driven by particular figures. It's macro forces that are so widely dispersed that it doesn't matter who the people are, that this was going to happen anyway. And, um, you, you know, you, you talk a lot about in the book about Stonewall Jackson during the the American Civil War, who was sort of weirdly, you know, killed by friendly fire. Mm-hmm. If he hadn't been, then the Civil War could easily, you know, you could make an argument, turn the other way. And then if the Civil War went the other way, then we have no America. We have sort of a two different countries, which therefore changes all of the 20th century right. and beyond. So what, what are your thoughts on the great man theory versus history from below? I think there's probably like a little bit of truth in both, right? Like they're is history from below and there are you know these like broader trends like fault lines in all of humanity that you know the 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 Teutonic plates are shifting and when they shift there's going to be a trimmer that realigns everything Mm -hmm. but then when that trimmer happens there are well you know who are the who are the players right on the stage who are going to take advantage so Mm -hmm. um, I think it's both you know you have sort of the the great men per se who are the ones who are you know pressing enough to take advantage of the trimmer. So if there's no trimmer, there's no great man. Mm-hmm. But if there's no great man, there's no one to take advantage of the trimmer. So there's sort of it's like a symbiotic relationship. Yeah. So I'm sort of, I guess I'm I'm in both camps. Yeah. Your book had me thinking a lot about it. And I was, as I was thinking more and more about it, I was thinking it, that if you're down to the sort of the micro level, if you're looking at a, a decade or a town, the great man theory makes some sense. Like this yeah. town wouldn't have sprung up but for this visionary who came here and built this factory or whatever, and so we have a town. Or within a decade, Hitler, you know, drove events over this 10-year period. Mm -hmm. But if you really zoom way out to, like, a species level and a 100,000 years level, like if some alien civilization is looking down at us and uh, and is evaluating us, maybe, like, when's the first time we're going to get off the planet and have space exploration? You know, maybe, maybe after Da Vinci, we had 50 more Da Vinci's in the 16 and 1700s, so we, we achieved space travel in 1860s instead of the 1960s. Well, that would be huge for us, but from from an alien civilization looking at us, well, they did it in like 109,900 years instead of 110,000 years. No big deal. It's all the same. Like, So it's sort of like history from below if you're really zoomed out, but if you're kind of zoomed in, it, the great man theory makes a little more sense. Well, I think it's interesting, too. Like, we're at a moment... In a, I think in a, at least in American life, but I think probably across the world, we're like we're talking about history in a way that we I feel like we don't we didn't used to talk about it. Like history has taken on this immediacy and how it is informing current events. Like yeah, listen, you've like Putin invading Ukraine. And he's giving like long speeches about very esoteric chapters of Russian history and the history of Kiev and the people of Russ. And that's how yeah. he's like justifying his invasion of Ukraine. So like people kind of go, people go back into history and they, you know, they, they, you know, I'm not saying what they're doing is always wrong. Like people will go into history and they will pull out narratives from history. Mm-hmm. I think what is important to differentiate is be cognizant of that you know people are always going to tell the stories whether it's a great man's story or uh or whether it's a story about tectonic forces in nature but um you can have your different narratives but you can't have your own facts Mm -hmm. right you can't say Mm -hmm. that like something didn't happen that just everyone knows it happened 
but it's worth knowing that everyone's going to kind of have their own interpretation of history. And I think you see, particularly in America, you see history wars going on in our culture right now of, you yeah. know, what's the real narrative? And so, you know, in Halcyon, that's like, I'm, I'm trying to explore that. You have a whole like cast of characters who've all got their different version of what history is. And they're, you know, and they're in a little bit of a, a fight at points in the novel about it. Yeah. It is the the Russian situation is, is crazy. I mean, it, it feels like, you know, a hundred years ago, countries did invade if you need some sort of natural resource or mineral like you invade that's just sort of, sort yeah. of how it went but we haven't really done that for a while you know in in most parts of the world now it's like i don't know it, putin seems to be resurrecting the stalin approach to yeah and it's funny you know when you, you look need. at like what's coming in the culture too like um like just movies for instance like um uh i don't know you're like i'm gonna go see oppenheimer you know, and like, um, why is a movie like Oppenheimer resonating in this moment? You know, and I have my theory, it probably is resonating because we feel like with all of the technological advances that are going on right now and the shifts that are occurring in the world, like we're at a similar like moment of historical inflection as that existed, like, you know, the, with, you know, the atomic age in the 40s. And so like Oppenheimer resonates today in a way maybe it didn't re- wouldn't have resonated like 10 or 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, or like, you know, I know there's a new um, Ridley Scott Napoleon movie coming out. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like Napoleon, like why now? Well, you know, you can kind of look what's in the zeitgeist and so yeah. i think that um yeah it's uh it feels a little bit like kind of a back to the future moment in our culture where sort of you know these 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 things we thought were never going to occur before are now like occurring all the time and we're seeing them splashed across the newspapers like yeah, people invading ukraine or what's going to happen in taiwan it seems like there's a lot of mm-hmm. uh uncertainty that maybe you know didn't feel quite as eminent as it did i don't know five ten or 15 years ago well i'm, I'm sure one of these will lead to your next book you do a lot of tv work as sort of a you know a subject matter expert for tv or for the atlantic and you're writing these pieces so looking forward to the next sparks that Thank light you. the field of flame for, for the next novel <laughs> me too what what is next for you before so we'll get into the lightning round here in a second but before that what's uh, what are you working on and what's next um so the next book that I will have come out will be a uh, will be 2054. Mm-hmm. Um, so which is a book. Um, so if 2034 imagined a war between China and the U.S. with the the role of cyber in it, 2054 imagines a civil conflict in the U.S. that borders on a civil war, and that's precipitated by the assassination of an American president, and. Uh, artificial intelligence and uh, the biological and technological singularity is sort of the, the the issue we're dealing with from a technological perspective. So you quickly see that um, that starts to feature in. So it's sort of, it was a war between China and the U.S. and 2054 is a, a civil war. So that will be out uh, in March of next year. Okay. And then I have a, another novel with uh, Kanaf. It's just a me novel uh, that mm-hmm. will be coming out after that. So well, looking busy. forward to both. Your, your prose really is so elegant and well done. And not only is there sort of the broad strokes wisdom of, I'm sure, your imaginations of what's happening in 2054 are well informed by you and the Admiral, but there's wisdom in each sentence. It's just like it's so well done. The observations of human nature and and just how the world works. It's, it was a, a delightful read. Thank you. Halcyon. I appreciate that. So on to the lightning round. Yes. All right. I'm like putting my seatbelt. I will have. Uh, <laughs> we're down to the olives, yeah, just so right. listeners know, which is, you know, the real. By the way, yeah, I think you, you were it. right. I should not have put that extra. It's too dirty. There's too much olive juice in here. Oh, it's good. Yeah. All right. Well, you're very it's forgiving. Like I, I can do better. We'll have another no, martini sometime soon, and I promise to do better. I feel like that was a little bit too mm-hmm. too olivey. All right. Lightning round. Favorite book as a kid. The Boys King Arthur. Well, the one that's uh, illustrated by N.C. Wyeth. I don't know if you know it. As Wyeth, yeah, it's yeah. a Philly family, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. beautiful illustrations. Um, I don't know. I, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a sucker for uh, the, all of the King Arthur story. I actually recently went and saw at Lincoln Center uh, the revival of Camelot, um, which is pretty great. I would recommend to, to anybody. So, yeah, the boys King Arthur. All right, I'll have to get that. I, I mean, I, I like there's the Twain King Arthur's Court. And, yeah, um, and N.C. Wyeth. Um, I've never seen that one. Did. Actually, my next book that's coming out is about N.C. and Andrew Wyeth. Um, so I'm, I'm very interested in them as painters, and my wife's family is from right around where they used to live, so I spent a lot of time in Wyeth country. I'm a Philly guy, and I know okay. they're sort of sub, like Chad's way... Chad's Ford. Yeah, Chad's yeah, yeah, Ford. Yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, she's from Delaware, so right on the border. But um, 
just like the illustrations are just like amazing. Yeah. I love that story. I mean, he also did Treasure Island. He illustrated Treasure Island. It's like back in the oh, I didn't know that. you know nineteen twenties and thirties for Scribner's. These like just beautiful old editions. And I had one as a kid. Um, so yeah. your next, your upcoming novel, your it's called nineteen nineteen. The one after the one 19, with the a- Admiral. Yeah, two thousand fifty-four. Yeah, yeah nineteen nineteen is the name of a. a a fictitious painting, but it's about the relationship between NC and Andrew Wyeth and kind of creativity between a father and a son. Father, son, yeah, okay. yeah. brother, brother. Because there's a whole bunch of Wyeths that were illustrated. There are, right? yeah. Um, With just the two? Painters. Or? No, so there's a. Um, Andrew and NC are the most famous, and then Andrew's son is also a painter. Okay. Yeah. All right. Book or books you're reading now? Well, um, so I am. I haven't started yet, but I'm very excited to start. Uh, Writer Benjamin Labutut's book, The Maniac, which is all about, that's uh, a novel. And it's all about uh, John von Neumann, who was a Hungarian scientist uh, who was one of the fathers of artificial intelligence in like the oh. 1940s, 50s, like one of the real pioneers. Mm-hmm. And Labutut wrote this book called uh, When We Cease to Understand the World. And he writes these like just very interesting books that kind of like dramatize scientific discovery mm-hmm. in a cool way. So I really liked his first book. And this one, I think, is coming out in the fall. And um, my editor just gave me an advanced copy of it. I'm like, I'm like, I don't know, I'm super, I'm like excited to like sit down and start oh, reading sounds it. Sounds great. And then, uh, and then I'm also reading a book called uh, Daybreak uh, from a friend of mine, a novel that's coming out early in 2024. Uh, that's all about Ukraine. A guy named Matt Gallagher, a friend of mine, is a journalist who's covered the war in Ukraine. He's written a few novels. He's also an Iraq war. I, you know, I, I I follow you on Instagram, and I know you recently posted yeah. about that. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. I, I, about, yeah. I, I heard it's Matt good. I'm like, wait, I've seen him post. I'm like 100 it. pages into it. It's great. Okay, yeah. cool. All right, so this is, I actually have a personal story about this next question, which I'll share. But um, so listeners know, in Halcyon, there's a scene that reimagines or that imagines a 2004 debate scene between Bush and Gore. That is, I mean, that alone is worth the book read. It's so funny and well done and clever. Uh, so clearly, you have some political observations and and uh, expertise. So, how would you advise a candidate debating against Donald Trump to counter-program the Donald Trump handshake yank that he is famous for doing to his opponents? Yeah. Um, he pulls you into his like his yeah. space. Yeah, I'll show you. This is this comes from my 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 brother, my brother's wrestling coach, the from, Olympic wrestler. The okay, Olympic wrestler. Yeah. His wrestling coach for many many years, who I became close with, was a guy named Granit Terrapin, who immigrated to the United States after the fall of the Soviet Union. And Granit, when he was in the Soviet Union, was was in the eighties, was voted one year like greatest coach in all of Soviet Union. Two of his wrestlers are like the most famous Russian wrestlers who ever lived. He like immigrated to the U.S., you know, and kind of had to find his way again and wound up uh, as a, an assistant coach when my brother went to college. And my, he and my brother became fast friends and my brother trained with him and competed with him for years and years and years. So Green was always a fixture in our family. And he was this, you know, big, stocky Russian guy, son of a fisherman. And he could famously take a piece of rope. Some do this like, you know, kind of that type of rope and tear it in half with his hands. Oh, my God. He's like, I was a monster. So when you would shake Granit's hand, sometimes he, he would see me, and I was like, Granit, good to see you. like, ah, Elliot, good to see you. And he would go like this to me. And he'd take it and go, ow. Like oh, my God. <laughs> Jesus. Right? Little Judo <laughs> with the thumb. <laughs> All right. That is so someone needs to learn that. So you kind of, you take great. you take the person's, as you hold their hand, you take your thumb, you just angle your hand and you push on their thumb joint. Yeah. So you're putting downward pressure on their, like you're going to dislocate their thumb. But it's a very elegant, it's very yeah. easy to do. If anyone kind of pull you just. Like the camera wouldn't pick that up. Wouldn't pick it up and suddenly he would be on his knees and, you know, he'd pull you in, but he'd suddenly be on That's, his knees I, in front of like you. You gave me like the merciful version of that. Yeah, I can like only a little imagine if you're really going for it. But you can imagine having this like, you know, hero of the Soviet Union do that to oh you at God. like Thanksgiving dinner. Right. He would so, crush me. So. You know, that guy, like Chris Christie, they all need to get in there and like have a little meeting with yeah, this well, guy. Yeah. And a little, so, little judo so my my quick story with that is back in like 2012 or something, long before Trump was even you know running. Uh, I mean, I guess he talked about it for years and years, but before he became president, long before, and before I think this handshake was even like a known yeah. thing, he was doing The Apprentice, and so a friend of ours was going to be on The Apprentice and so he went mm. to the set because he was doing a you know an event to raise the money in the competition and part of that was to get as many of your friends to go as you could so we went and I met him as we were leaving the venue and you know what he does it's like he re- he sort of he sort of gets his feet set in a in a 
in a yeah. wide base, and then he reaches <laughs> way out to take your hand, and then he yanks your hand all the way back to his hip, so he pulls you tumbling off your feet right into him. And I had no idea. I was like, oh, hey, yeah. hey, uh, Donald. And uh, he does this to me, and I go flying forward. And I'm like, you know, it's it's for someone else. It's like kind of embarrassing. You're like, this guy just yanked me off my feet. So I'm walking out with my wife. I'm like, do you know what that sob just did? Did you even notice that he like just pulled me like way forward? It was like the weirdest thing. I don't know what. And then so years later, uh, I discovered he you know does that all the time. It's like it's it's actually you got to give him credit. It's like a very uh, it's a good. I should need to do like he should do like like a like a I don't know like a thirty minute training course for all of our like NATO allies so they're like so they're ready if it ever happens again to shake the president's hand. Right, exactly. What your trick? That's fantastic that you've got like a thing for that. Is there a name for that? I don't know the the, the granite two shuffle. I don't. Know. I mean, it's like it's almost like a thumb wrestling war, except you go deep down, in the angle you and deep down and hard, down hard. Yeah, yeah, just a little. Anyway, all right. Well, for any uh, presidential hopefuls, listen. So you call there me, you I'll teach you. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So since you wrote a book on alternate history, the classic question, of course, is if you could take out Hitler in his youth, would you do it? Yes. You would do it. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I mean, we had our conversation about like the, you know, great man theory of history, but I'm like, you know, would you not do it? Yeah, sure. Why not? And then let the chips fall where they may. Yeah. 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 I mean, it, it, it could be worse. Of course, you could have someone because the table was set post Versailles Treaty, of course, in Germany, the table was set for something bad to happen. Uh, but the only thing worse would be someone who was sort of like minded to him, but with is a better military strategist than he was, you know. Like, yeah, I mean, there's Ill, that old Ill joke wins. Like the, the best general for the Allies was Hitler. You right, know, right, 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 right. Well, that's true. But like, ill winds were blowing through, you know, through Central Europe then. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah. But uh, you know, I, I, I would. Let me just. I'm not going to answer. No, I wouldn't kill Hitler. Yeah. So yeah, uh, exactly. I, I, yeah, yeah. So yeah. I think you know, you let the chips fall where they're gonna. Best war film ever made. Uh, yeah. This is a tough one. Um, so. I mean, you could go like uh, Full Metal Jacket, mm. Platoon, Patton, you know, uh, mm-hmm. Dr- Coppola uh, was it George movie. C. Scott. And yeah, Patton, written, yeah, written by, you know, Coppola's big movie. That was his breakout movie was he wrote the screenplay for Patton. Um, I tell you, I got to land on Tropic Thunder. <laughs> That's great. Oh. All right. I that mean, was just tro- in the news recently, weren't they? Yeah, people were upset. I mean, Tropic, you know, you... you I mean, everyone's written about the pity of war, and I get it. And like, it is a well-trod subject that I'm, and I'm there, you know. But like, well, it's a you know, no, people cast, don't want to talk. Got... Like, you know, war's funny sometimes. Hate to break it to you, like, you know, it's it can be funny. Like, I remember being deployed. Like, we watched Tropic Thunder like over and over again. I've watched it, and afterward, I someone said, "Oh yeah, Tom Cruise was great," and I'm like, "Tom Cruise wasn't in that. What are you talking about?" Oh my god, <laughs> genius! Right? They're like, no, he was that guy. I'm yeah, like, yeah, yeah. what? He was that guy? Yeah, um, it might be yeah, his greatest role. I mean, I remember watching. I remember watching. Team America on a bootleg DVD in Iraq in the fall of 2004. <laughs> I mean, just like dying, like you're like it's us, you know, like laughing. So, um, so I have a very special place in my heart for 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 Tropic Thunder, Team America. Awesome! I did not great. see that one coming. That's great. But that was a great movie. I really enjoyed that yeah. too. Especially I and I, I maintain Tom Cruise's greatest performance. All right. In this sort of lightning round, I often ask, "What was the least attended book event ever?" And you know, sort of back to your earlier thing, we all get knocked around. And, particularly early on. For you, I, I sort of redid it because, um, I mean, it, actually, I'll just make this into two questions. You're least have attended, but, you know, you were like, I don't know, you had huge credentials by the time you were publishing your first book. You were a war hero. You, you know, had these amazing bronze star, silver star, purple heart. So you probably never had a zero, I would think. But um, least attended book event and then just strangest moment or question ever at a book event. Well, I'll tell you when I talk to people who are writing or you know starting the thing. I think I, I will often maintain, and I do. It's like I'll say you're not a real writer until two things have happened to you. Number one is you've written a book nobody has bought, <laughs> and number two, you've done a book event that like three people have shown up to. And it's like once you've had those experiences, it's like you're bulletproof, baby. Yeah, like, they can't do anything to you. You know, like you've been there, done that. Um, so the most bizarre one that ever happened—not even bizarre—it was just sort of funny. Was um, I was doing this book event and you know, and it was like decently attended, you know, it was fine. And, um, and I'm sitting and it's like, I'm in the bookstore and I'm kind of talking. Um, 
I, and it was for places and names. It was my memoirs. So it was like a book of nonfiction. So I'm talking about kind of like experience when I went into this book. And I sort of see this woman and, you know, she sort of like kind of sees me and kind of like her eyes sort of light up. And like she didn't seem like she'd come there for the event. She seemed like she was just like browsing. She sort of mm-hmm. sat down and was watching. I'm like, that's great. Someone else is going to watch. I'm talking about the book, talking about the book. And then we kind of come to the, she'd only been sitting for like five minutes at that point. And then we come to the Q&A part and there's like a microphone on the side and people line up to ask questions. And then she gets, this woman gets up and she's like, um, I'm sorry, I, I just came in. Um, uh, very interesting. Um, in your book, you know, do you do you touch on some of the films that you were in, like uh, My Left Foot, Last of the Mohicans, which I loved. And I was like very, very confused. Right. And this woman had only sat down because she thought I was Daniel Day-Lewis. <laughs> <laughs> I can see that. And I, you know, younger and, version of... And it's of... funny. I actually, I mean, you know, not like, I don't want to be like, you know, hey, people think I'm Han Solo or like, you know, but like, you know, I will get, I will get Andy Murray somewhat, you know, I get that so much from the I tennis, more the the tennis hair player. Than, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I get Daniel Day-Lewis, like... Yeah, not, I can see like that. a couple times a year, someone will like. I mean, this is like last of the Mohicans version. Version, of, yeah, which is more, like, like 20 I was years actually, ago. I was actually on a plane like three weeks ago. Uh, I was on an international flight, and I take my international travel very seriously, particularly if it's an overnight flight. So I'm probably embarrassing myself. So like, I will actually go to the bathroom and put on pajamas so I sleep because I sleep a lot better. <laughs> so I'm standing there like waiting to go in the bathroom I'm in my pajamas, and the 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 flight attendant comes up to me and she's like. I'm sorry. I'm sure you don't want to hear this, but you're Daniel Day-Lewis, right? <laughs> and I looked at her stone-faced, and I was like, yes, I yes, am. Yes, I am. And then, and then her colleague was like, no, he's not. <laughs> so anyways, but having that woman, having it took me a while to like unpiece, and I had to like break the news to her that I was, no, I'm sorry, man, like you didn't just walk into Daniel Day-Lewis's book event. This is like a different book. And actually, she was very nice. She like sat down afterwards. We had a laugh about it, and she bought the book. So, oh, there you yeah. go. One more sale. Yeah, yeah. So there you go. But she was great. Yeah. That is a great story. That is funny. But I can see that. That's, that's like, Yeah, every now and again, I'll get it. All right. Last question for Elliot Ackerman. One piece of advice for the listeners. Show up like when it comes to writing. I think it's very important. I mean, anything that you're doing, particularly anything creative, is like you got to show up. Or at least I found like showing up really matters. Like on the days you don't want to write or when it's going poorly or like we were talking about when you're like, you know, for me, if I'm like writing my thousand words and I know they're garbage words, like, you know, if I'm at word 500 and I'm just going horrible, if I show up for like the end of the day's work, like oftentimes like, you know, good things happen. So I think mm-hmm. um, I think we don't emphasize just the importance of like showing up on yeah. the bad days. Like there's something about, you know, uh, I think just being there that makes uh, that makes, you know, magical, magical acts of creation occur. That's so yeah, I wonder if it comes a bit from your like your your background in the service in the military. Like you, it's discipline. You, you got to be there. No, I hate it. It sounds very unmystical. But like, I actually think like. Being a Marine is, is excellent preparation for being a writer because it's like, you know, it's like the one thing, you know, there's tough advice for the just just go and list for a few years. There's a, you know, there's a great book. I would recommend it to any of your listeners by Stephen Pressfield, who's written a number. He wrote The the Legend of Bagger Vance and he wrote that book, oh, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, Gates of Fire. And I just recently came across this book and he I think he self-published it. Um, but it's in uh, it's called the not the art of war. It's called The War of Art. And he and his book talks about, yeah. you know, he, you know, he talks about that as ideas like showing up of being relentless. Um, he himself was a Marine many years ago, and he's like, the, and he basically said, you know, the one thing Marines know how to do is to be miserable. He's like, that's great preparation <laughs> for being a writer. Like, you know, you're just going to you be endure. miserable, endure, show up, get yeah. through the sucky parts, because um, that's where all like the the magic and good stuff happens. So yeah, I think showing up is, uh, it's it's uh, it's it's always made the difference for me. That's great advice, yeah. Elliot. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. If you enjoyed this podcast, please download, rate, subscribe, write a comment. Let me know the authors you want to hear from. I read all the comments. Thank you. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.
Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.